Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, May 29th, 2022. It focuses on Isaiah's faithfulness to God as a prophet, regardless of the outcome, and King Hezekiah's humility in circumstances beyond his control. The message to all who will listen is you can take your troubles to God and he will help you. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. You ready for God's word? All right, let's listen to what God has to say to us and let's invite him to come and speak to us. God, help us to hear you. Not only with our ears, but with our hearts and help us to go and live out what you give for us to do. To go out and say what you give us to say. For your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I want you to think through the next seven days and make a declaratory statement, an I will statement about the week ahead. Not out loud, just in your head. Something like, I will get together with my family at the lake, or I will paint the shed in the backyard. Something like that. Got something in your mind? Something you think is going to happen? How probable, now listen, how probable is it that that's going to take place? Fairly probable, right? If you took this exercise seriously and stated something that you truly plan to do, but still there's a non-zero chance that what you think will happen won't happen. You do not know what you will do for sure. You don't know what's going to take place this week. There are things that will happen that you did not anticipate. Now, change it up a bit. I want you to think of a friend or a family member, maybe picture them in your head, maybe you're sitting across the table from them, and I want you to make a specific assertion about what they will do this week. Do not do this out loud. You will clean up the garage. You will buy me a diamond ring, something like that. Uh, do you have something in mind? How confident about that are you? Are you as sure of that prediction as you were about speaking for yourself or about your plans? Now, let's broaden it one more time. Make a predictive statement about what a large group of people will do before next Sunday. The Russian army will stage a coup and end the war against Ukraine. The Golden State Warriors will win at least one game in the NBA Finals. Pratt Friends Church will get up and leave as their pastor drones on and on about predictive statements. <laughs> now, these things are possible, maybe even probable for some, some of them, I suppose, but they are also completely beyond knowing. There are far too many variables involved, far too many individuals who might act in this way or that and change the direction of the group drastically. All this to say, you and I do not know what the future holds for us or for those we love or for any group of people. State a little more forcefully, we cannot know what's around the chronological corner. So listen to what James writes to the church concerning this matter. I'm reading James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. I want you to pay attention to what this leader in the early church says to each and every one of us who follow Jesus. He was writing to the church. He's writing to the church today. Listen. In fact, that's what he says. Now listen. 
You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. To speak of what you will or won't do in the future without acknowledging God's hand in the unfolding of all events, James says it's sin, that it's evil. He's the one, God's the one who knows what's coming. Aren't those things implied here? If it is the Lord's will. Even if you don't say those words out loud, and I don't think that's a prescription here, but even if you don't say those exact words every single time you talk about what you will or will not do, they ought to guide your thinking about the next days and the next hours of your life. They should lead you to choose things to do which are godly and right. Don't you think? For the past Five weeks or so we've been talking about this prophet or that in each installment of this series on God's men. We've heard Nathan or Abijah or Elijah or Micaiah or Elisha say, this is what the Lord says. And many times this phrase was followed by a word from God concerning the future. Solomon will build a temple. Jeroboam will be king over ten breakaway tribes. There's not going to be any rain until I say so. Ahab's life will come to an end in this way. This food will feed a hundred and there will be leftovers. In each and every case, what the prophet said after his this is what the Lord says came to pass. Why? Because God knows what's going to come to pass. Even before it happens, he knows the future. He knows what's next in the progression of time. He is all-knowing. We're going to see God at work in a predictive way again today. As we look at one last prophet, we're going to watch as this guy says, this is what the Lord says about a future event, and we'll see that it comes to pass. When I originally laid out my plan for this series on the prophets, I thought I would take on Jonah or Daniel as uh, the final message. That plan changed when I discovered a short story or two at the end of 2 Kings about another prophet at work among God's people. This prophet is one who wrote a book. Finally, somebody that wrote a book, right? In fact, his is the longest of all the prophetic books, 66 chapters filled with loads of this is what the Lord says, predictions about nations and about individuals, and more importantly for us, about the Messiah so that we would recognize him. Before we read the stories from 2 Kings, which incidentally are also included in this prophet's book, let me read you the story of this prophet's invitation from God to give forth God's word. If you grab your Bible, we're going to turn to Isaiah 6, and now you know who we're going to talk about. The 13 verses of this chapter in Isaiah's book detail God's calling and the man's response, and we're going to look at just the first eight verses. So Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8, this is how it begins. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. That's Isaiah. He's talking here. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. So God shows up unexpectedly. Isaiah is overwhelmed with his revelation of God's glory and his holiness, and the man proclaims woe against himself. He sees himself for the sinner that he is and understands that he lives among a people who are not following after God. And God takes Isaiah's sin. He takes it away. He atones for it. He makes sure he's made right. And then God wonders aloud who could be sent to speak to the people on his behalf. And Isaiah raises his hand. He says, here I am. I volunteer. I'll go. And he sent out to proclaim a message, which if we had read verse 9, we would know that God says the people are going to ignore you. Now, how many people want that job? Most would not want a job where they know that they're going to fail. But God gave this to Isaiah to do. Whatever the results. Here's the good news for you and me. We only need concern ourselves with doing what God gives us to do, not with what he does not give us to do. And we only need to concern ourselves with what he gives us to say, not what he doesn't want us to say. And we don't have to concern ourselves with the results. Those are in God's hands as well. God knows what will happen and what won't happen. We need only obey, trusting him to do what he wants done. If it is the Lord's will... Now, we're going to take in the first story from 2 Kings in which Isaiah plays a part. He appears first in chapter 19, but before we can read any of that chapter, we need to know what's going on. And so, as always, context matters. In order to understand why God first needs to speak through Isaiah to his people, we need to at least skim through the events of 1 Kings chapter 18. It's in the 37 verses of this chapter that the problem arises, which requires a response from God. So let's start at the beginning of the chapter, where in the first verses we are introduced to the king from David's line who is currently seated on the throne in Jerusalem. His name is Hezekiah, and we need to hear what's written about him. If you will, please follow along as I read 2 Kings 18, verses 1 through 4. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. 
It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah is not like Ahab, which we talked about over and over throughout the last couple of weeks. Ahab was the worst of the worst kings, the ruler of God's people in Israel. Hezekiah is in the top two or three of the good kings who followed in David's line. He straightened things up, points people back to God, shuts down weird worship venues, which likely were promoting idolatry. He smashes an unusual idol. Isn't it crazy that the people are worshiping the bronze snake that God used to save them from the poisonous snakes in the desert? Because Hezekiah is set on following the Lord, the Lord is with him. God helps him defeat Judah's enemies and throw off foreign oppression. You can take a look at verses 5 through 8, and you'll see that. I suppose since we're used to political freedom and a measure of self-governance in our country, we might feel a little uncomfortable living under a king, maybe. But I think we'd have been happy to serve this one if monarchy was what we were used to because this guy is godly and godly men in general treat those that they're charged with supervising better than those who are ungodly if we took a vote which we couldn't if it was a kingship but if we took a vote we'd take hezekiah over ahab any day it was a good time to be alive in judah it was not however a good time to be a citizen of Israel in the north. The next four verses in 2 Kings tell of Israel's defeat at the hand of Assyria. We aren't going to read all of those verses, but let me read verse 12 because it tells us why Israel lost their battle with Assyria and why their people were deported to another place. Here's verse 12. This happened, that is all the exile and all the defeat of Israel, this happened because they had not obeyed the Lord their God, but had violated his covenant. All that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, they neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. Israel, remember, they're the people who broke off from Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and they formed their own nation, and they chose under the leadership of Jeroboam, the first king of the northern tribes, to set up these baby cow gods and to worship them and say, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt, blaspheming God. They were people who did as they pleased rather than obey God's commands given through Moses, and so they find themselves in a predicament that God said they would find themselves in if they refused him and broke his covenant. Rejecting God leads to destruction. The ten tribes exiled at this moment in history completely lose their identity. They get so mixed in with the Assyrians that they are never again identified as God's people. In fact, we often call them the lost tribes of Israel. Fast forward eight years. A new king rules in Assyria, and he sets his heart on doing to Judah what his predecessor had done to Israel. Sennacherib, that's the Assyrian king's name, sends his army to Jerusalem with a message which his field commander delivers to the city's citizens. I'm not going to read all of his words, but I will say this. The one word that best describes the king of Assyria's attitude in his words is arrogance. He is full of himself, sure that he can, by his own arm, defeat any and all comers. He mocks Judah and, foolishly, their God. 
Hezekiah hears the words of this haughty king and humbled himself before God. He tears his clothing, puts on sackcloth, and heads for the temple. There, his officials and the priests respond humbly as well, bowing low before God, and they all are asking for help. This is where Isaiah makes his grand entrance. The guys in the temple sent a group of representatives to him, some officials that go to Isaiah, and God speaks through Isaiah to the king and to the rest. So let's read a bit of the story. Take a look at what we have in 2 Kings 19, 5 through 7. It's in these verses that we find God's word to King Hezekiah through Isaiah. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. I told you it was coming. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with a sword. Did you catch the I will statements there? Isaiah must have felt a sense of awe as he spoke them. I will make him want to return. I will have him cut down. These are not like the I will statements that I encourage you to make earlier in this message. While your statements will likely come true because that's what you plan to do this week, these statements are certainly going to come true because the one speaking of them is the one who knows what's going to happen. I will make them want to return. I will have them cut down. The first happens almost immediately. The king of Assyria hears the king of Cush is marching out to fight him, and he has to leave Jerusalem. He sends a second pride-filled message to Hezekiah as he departs. And in part, his letter reads like this in verse 10 through 12. This is the representative of the king of Assyria speaking to or writing to Hezekiah. Do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? What does Hezekiah do with this dispatch that his enemy has sent via courier? Let's find out. We're going to skip down to verse 14. Here's what it says, verse 14 to 19. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Is there any better thing Hezekiah could have done with Sennacherib's note? No. The king of Judah lays out the letter before God and asks God to deliver his people for his name's sake. Let all the earth know that you are God. Are you dealing with any kind of difficulty? Is the enemy seeking to distract you from worshiping God and trusting him? 
Humbly take whatever's troubling you to God. Lay it at his feet. Tell him what your enemy is doing or saying. Tell him what the bill says. Lay the bill out in front of him. Say, this is yours, God. Trust him to work. God again speaks after the king has prayed. The prophet's words are a lengthy rebuke of the king of Assyria, laced with words of hope for God's people. The message God gives through Isaiah concludes, and God acts. So listen now to chapter 19. I'll start at verse 34 with God's final words, and then we'll read a little bit further than that. So starting at verse 34, this is what we have. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Verse 35, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramalek and Sherezer killed him with a sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esharad, Esharad, I don't know how I say his name. Anyway, he succeeded him as king. His son did. I will make him want to return. I will have him cut down with a sword. Did both things happen which Isaiah prophesied? Yeah, and more. Judah's enemies learned the hard way, 185,000 dead men in one night, that the God of Judah is not like the gods of the nations that they had defeated. When the God of Judah says, I will, what he wills happens. Now, we've covered the story from Isaiah's life that I really wanted to make sure we got to this morning, but there are two other incidences which involve him in chapter 20. In the first verses of the chapter, Hezekiah gets sick. And God sends this message through Isaiah. This is what the Lord says. There it is again. This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Not the most encouraging word from God, but it's what God says is going to happen. And what does the king do? He humbles himself as he had done earlier when the armies of Assyria were knocking on the gates of the city. Weeping bitterly, he prays and God's message changes. Here's what it says in verses 4 through 6. 2 Kings 20 verses 4 to 6 says, Before Isaiah had left the middle court, he's already delivered the message, you're going to die. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David." Long story short, the king is healed as God, through Isaiah, said he would be. Let me repeat myself. Humbly take whatever is troubling you to God. Humbly take whatever is troubling you to God. Lay all of your troubles at his feet. Trust him to work on your behalf in a way that will bring him glory. The second story from chapter 20 is not quite as encouraging. I'm not going to read it all, but instead I'll summarize. 
The king of Babylon sends an envoy to Judah after hearing of the king's illness. Hezekiah, whom God has healed, is in high spirits when the Babylonians arrive, and he shows off all the wealth of his kingdom before sending them on their way. Isaiah shows up shortly after the Babylonians leave, and what he says is found in verses 14 to 18. You can follow along as I read 2 Kings 20, verses 14 to 18. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say, and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Verse 16, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Was Hezekiah wrong to take these Babylonians on the grand tour of his palace? It seems maybe his actions were motivated by pride, but the text doesn't say that. It just kind of hints at it. Still, we must ask, has the good king forgotten the God who rescued him and the God who provided all that there is? Whether God is rebuking a king who's gotten too full of himself or not is not for me to say. What it seems God wants this king and all of Judah to know is this, you are not invincible if you are not faithful to me. Israel's exile into Assyria should have been warning enough. It was not. God had to speak words of warning to Judah as well. In a few short years, Isaiah's words will come to pass. The people, as God told the man from the onset, would not heed his words. What do you need to do with what you've heard today? Did God urge you to continue faithfully serving him, whatever the outcome? Did you hear his invitation to bring your troubles to him? And humbly trust his actions, come what may. Did he tell you to keep trusting in him and his provision rather than in your own efforts? What did God say? Whatever God has said to you through his word, I encourage you to respond in faith as we close our time together with a time of silence, a time for reflection and talking with God. Ask God for what you need. Trust him and keep doing his perfect will in your life and in the lives of those you love, knowing that he will see you through and that he knows what's coming and he'll bring you to the place that he needs you to be in. So let's take just a few moments. I want to invite you to lay whatever it is that's troubling you out before the Lord today. I think that's an appropriate response to this.
So if you want to just put your hands out on your lap, if there's something that you have need of that you want to bring before the Lord, and just pray along with me. God, we have needs, and we know that you're our provider. And we trust you for what you need to give to us. God, help us to be patient. Help us to be willing to receive your good answer, whatever it is. God, I pray that you would meet our needs. We trust you for those things. And God, help us to be a people who look around for the needs of others so that you might bless them through us. God, help us to be a trusting people. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.